You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Bit of an obstacle race getting to the pulpit today. <laughs> While I hope singing that psalm did you good, um, I have a friend who wrote an article uh, that was widely published making a comment, actually, I think, on, the, on contemporary Christian music and words. What do miserably uh, suffering Christians sing? I had a, an email recently from a friend, recently bereaved, who had gone to a church, and he said, why is it that the, the music said to me, you should be unremittingly happy as a Christian. And then he went to a Bach concert, and uh, he sent me the words of the Bach cantata that were gospel words tearing out your soul, so true to Scripture. So we are blessed that we continue to sing the Psalms of David, which our Lord Jesus used as his praise book and prayer book. And so if we're going to, isn't it interesting, what would Jesus do? He would sing psalms. Well, thank God for the psalms, the sore ones as well as the exultant ones. We're going to read in Scripture from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers chapter 6 and from verse 22 to verse 27. And if you're using the church Bible, you'll find this on page 141. You know these words very well. Um, it would have, however, been interesting to have had a quiz as we went in uh, to ask how many of us knew where to find them in the Bible, hidden away here at the close of Numbers chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that is, the high priest and his descendants. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. If you've been in uh, any kind of relatively orthodox Christian church over the years, these are probably among the most familiar words. If you have an Anglican Episcopalian background or a Presbyterian background, you will have heard them frequently used as the closing benediction in a service or spoken or even sung in some traditions after a baptism. Uh, and they just happen to be in some ways the high point of the Old Testament. Uh, we may think, well, isn't that Isaiah uh, 53? And yes, in some ways it is. Couldn't it be Psalm 23? Yes, and in some ways it is. But in many ways, as I hope we'll see, this enshrines 
the high point of the Old Testament because it is both the apex and the conclusion of Old Testament worship. It is the benediction that, for example, Aaron and the high priests throughout the generations would have pronounced on the Day of Atonement when the great sacrifice had been made for the sins of the people on that annual occasion. And he would come forth from the holy place, attired in those amazing vestments so full of symbolism, of past glory, of present need, of future anticipation of pardon. And he would raise his hands and pronounce on the people this benediction, this ironic blessing. I happened to be in a service at a conference a few weekends ago, Sunday morning service. There was the Lord's Supper. There was a closing prayer, and that was it. And if you belong to our tradition, uh, you probably would have felt like me. You mean there is no benediction? And you might think, well, that's trivial because what the benediction means is we can shuffle around now. And what are the words that follow the benediction? Tea and coffee will be served at the back of the church. So the great function of the benediction is to prepare you for the coffee or to tell you we're finished. But here, the benediction is the climax and the high point of the service. Indeed, I think we might even be bold enough to say that in our own services of worship, the climax, even in the Reformed tradition, does not lie in the sermon. The climax lies in the pronouncing of the benediction. And so I want us to take a little while this morning to explore this benediction with which most of us are so familiar. And I want to point out essentially three features that it has. The first of them that I think would have been almost impossible, not quite impossible, but almost impossible for our English translators to bring out in the text. And I want to uh, try and help us to understand that this is a benediction of great beauty. Now, that's communicated to us, I think, just by the words, even in English. Of course, these words were originally given in Hebrew. Uh, some of you at least will be familiar with the, with the great philosophical discussions that go back at least to Plato as to what is the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we certainly know that the people of God were taught the good, and we also know they were taught the truth. But the fact of the matter is they were also taught the beautiful. They were taught that God was the creator of beauty. They were taught that the heavens declare his glory, which we might say is the outshining, the visible expression of his eternal divine beauty. And there is a kind of beauty here in this benediction. If you ask uh, our elder, Will Traub, uh, what is the most beautiful language in the world? He will not say, must be Gallic. 
He won't even say it must be American English. He will, although I've never asked him, I'm sure he will say, well, the answer's obvious. He teaches Hebrew in the church seminary, but he doesn't think Hebrew is the most beautiful language because he teaches it in the church seminary. He teaches it in the church seminary because, you should be nodding at this point, Will, because he believes it is a language of exquisite beauty. My observation is this. In theological seminaries, the students who typically do well in Hebrew are not those who come with a degree in French and German. They are often those who come with a degree in mathematics, engineering, or music. Now, why should that be? And interestingly, why should it be that for, for so many years in our Western culture, the, the people who have excelled, given their relatively small number, the people who have excelled in these three areas have either been Jewish or in some way connected to Jewish people? It is because the very nature of the language in which God taught them to express themselves its beauty lies in, 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 in its qualities of design. And uh, I imagine if you're a mathematician, that's one of the things that fascinates you. Certainly if you're a musician and if you're an engineer, the way things fit together, the designs that they create. And that actually belongs to the essence of beauty. You know, they say the simplest way to discover whether you have a beautiful face do you want to know? You take a f selfie, as we say now. You take a selfie, you print it out, and then if you can fold it in the middle and both halves fit together, it's just possible you're actually beautiful. Don't even, this, this should not be tried except by experts. It would be too depressing. But what does that mean? It means that there is something about beauty that involves shape and symmetry and design that speaks design to us. And this is actually fascinatingly embedded. Uh, Will will show you this on his Hebrew Bible on his telephone later on if you're really interested in it. There is a, there's an almost engineering-like mathematical design in this benediction. For example, the first line of it has three words. The second line has five words. The third line has seven words, which is, I think, what they call an arithmetical progression. Not only so, but the first line has 12 syllables, the second line 14 syllables, the third line 16 syllables. Not only so, but the first line has 15 consonants, the second line 20 consonants, the third line 25 consonants. It, it speaks design and pattern and beauty. It, and it, it draws you in. I mean, I suppose if your Hebrew is good enough, it draws you in. If this were in English and it was designed like that, in that poetical form, it would, it would draw you in. That's why poetry, in distinction from prose, tends to draw us in and it expresses in a way prose never can beauty. Um, 
That's why we sing, my love is like a red, red rose, or shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art lovelier far, etc., etc. Beauty expressed in design and poetry. Perhaps the most intriguing thing about this is there are 15 words in this benediction. There are 15 words in this benediction. The Lord's name is mentioned three times. What is 15 minus 3? 12. What is 12? Well, it so happens in this benediction that's so full of patterns that 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. So this benediction, almost, almost in an arithmetical form, a friend who is, was professor of number in one of the great universities, I used to tease him about sitting in a darkened room just counting. He said, no, no, I'm doing theology. It's just I'm not using words like you do. I'm exploring the mystery of the universe. And here, whether, you know, whether this is, is this, how did this come about? But you put together the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, with the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, and you get a benediction. It's almost as though the, the very structure of this benediction is saying to us, what is the key to beauty? What is the key to life? What is the key to blessedness? It is when the Lord dwells among the tribes of his people. And this, of course, is what the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, but also the New teaches us. The Old Testament speaks about the presence of God bringing forth what it calls the beauty of holiness. The Old Testament speaks about the Lord making beautiful the meek with his salvation. And so the, the, the way in which this, this benediction is a benediction of unusual beauty also points us to the fact that the source for real beauty is to be found in the presence of the Lord. Uh, you know that, don't you? You know the beautiful people have had plastic surgery? And they use those little tubes that cost 40 pounds, you know, in the expensive counters in Boots or, you know, somewhere in Paris or Geneva. You know that the beautiful people don't think of themselves as beautiful. You know that when the beautiful people speak often, there are asterisks in the interview describing what's in their heart and what comes out of their mouth. Words of violence, and you know that we are being conned, and you know our youngsters are being conned, you know our youngsters are being told you are beautiful, and the more they are told you are beautiful and look at the beautiful people, the less and less they feel themselves to be beautiful. And here in this benediction that was to be given to all the people of God is the secret of true beauty. You know people who by physical standards, are not particularly beautiful who are really beautiful people. You do, don't you? And you understand what this secret is. 
So the first thing to notice is that this is a benediction of great beauty. The second thing to notice is that this benediction was given at the high point of the Old Testament liturgy. Um, If you look at the verses that precede this, and this has often puzzled people, the verses that precede this extraordinary blessing about the Nazarite oath, uh, what precedes that uh, you may notice is about, is about offerings. And what precedes that is, of all things, a test for adultery and description of people who are ritually unclean. And, and then suddenly, as it were, out of the blue, doesn't make any sense until you realize that this actually is the end point, the conclusion of chapter after chapter that goes back into the previous book, Leviticus, describing the worship of Israel. And so it's not just like, a, a, oh, there's a space there on my paper, I'll, I'll write in a benediction. It's the climax of all the teaching that's been given all through the book of Leviticus and now early on into the book of Numbers. It's the climax of all the teaching that has been given about how is it that sinners can come and worship God and enter into His presence and be received by Him, and discover His blessing. And you remember how this happened. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses had been told about the garments that were to be woven for Aaron, the high priest, and that he was to to wear when he brought the sacrifice to the Lord for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And there was, a, there was a beauty in the garments that reflected the beauty of the tabernacle that was probably intended to reflect the beauty of the original creation before we marred it. And especially, of course, the high priest, exclusively the high priest, not your ordinary priest, but the high priest, would wear this breastplate that would be fixed on his lapels, And on it were twelve precious stones, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. On his shoulders, the two stones with six tribes on one, six tribes on the other. And it was all symbolic. What was he doing? It was symbolic of the fact that the, the sacrifice that was made for the sins of the people, especially on the great day of atonement, would be then carried into the holy place, into the very presence of God, at little bells on one of the garments he wore to reassure the other priests who were serving that he was still alive and that the the sacrifice had not been rejected. And there he would carry into the presence of God, the names of all of the tribes of Israel on his heart, on his shoulders, their names, their sacrifice. It was all all to say, in the person of the high priest, you are being carried into the very presence of God. He is taking your name into the presence of God. And then the sacrifice having been accepted, he would come out and pronounce this benediction. And you'll notice what's said in the last verse of the chapter, so shall 
the priests put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The high priest was bringing our name into God's presence with a sacrifice, and he was coming out to us with God's name. If I'd been an Old Testament believer and had been able to see the high priest disappear into the holiest place of all, I would have been able to say, there goes my name into the presence of God. He's presenting my name and a sacrifice for my sins in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And now, wonder of wonders, he's coming out and his hands are going up and he is now pronouncing God's name upon me. He's saying to me, you are accepted because of the sacrifice that has been made. So, this benediction not only a benediction of great beauty, it's also a benediction that stood at the high point of the Old Testament liturgy. And so it must have been precisely at that high point. You imagine, for example, the the 12-year-old boys. Remember, Jesus was taken to the feast when he was 12 years old, first time. You know, imagine, think of yourself now as a, as a 12-year-old and, and you're with your dad and you, and you catch sight of this and you see the goats that one of them has been taken away into the wilderness with the people's sins on it and the other has been sacrificed and, and you see the sacrifices and if you can just catch a glimpse of the high priest going in with the blood of animals, you wouldn't you look up, you know, if you're, you were all bright 12-year-olds in this church and say, Daddy, how can that animal's blood take away my sin? How can that animal's blood take away my sin? If you'd been from Glasgow, you might have said to him, Daddy, it's no fair. It doesn't work. Remember the great hymn that expresses this, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away my stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all my sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And see, all this was a, this was a, this was the divine pop-up picture book. You know, you, you don't give your 12-year-old son the Brothers Karamazov to read. If you want him to know the story, you try and find a pop-up picture book. And this is the pop-up picture book. And, and it's, intended, it's intended to prepare God's people for the real thing. And that, of course, is what is enshrined in in this benediction. It may be part of the reason why the name of the Lord recurs and recurs. It's pointing forward to a transaction that is hidden in this event that leads to the pronouncing of the benediction. And so the third thing to notice is that this benediction is fulfilled only in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Actually, interesting Luke, who has a great interest in how the New Testament connects to the Old 
in terms of patterns. Luke seems to have grasped this. Do you remember, do you remember what happens right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry? Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us what age Jesus was. He says he was about 30. Why would he say that? Because it's true? Well, it was true, but why do the other gospel writers not say it? Because what he's sending to us is a message that says he was just at the age when someone who had been trained for the priesthood would enter into his public priestly ministry. Then you remember right at the end of Luke's gospel, like almost the last thing Jesus does, he raises his hands and he pronounces the benediction on his disciples. It's almost as though the whole public ministry of Jesus is squeezed in between the day he enters on his public ministry as the high priest of God's people and the day when, having made a sacrifice for our sins, himself being both the priest who offered the sacrifice to God and the sacrifice he offered, then comes forth from the hidden darkness of Calvary and the garden tomb and meets with his disciples and pronounces on them the benediction the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and give you peace. And in a way, it takes the rest of the New Testament to explain to us how it is that that's possible. How we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ because he has taken God's judgment curse. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us in order that the benediction, the blessing of God might flow to us. And the, and the wonderful thing, Paul says, how in Jesus Christ we have seen in his face the glory of God, the, the outshining of the beauty of God, and the way in which through the ministry of the Holy Spirit you remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3? He says, as we, as we gaze upon the Lord, we are transformed more and more into His likeness. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you give you peace. I want you to notice a couple of things as we finish this morning. The first is, interestingly, this benediction. Just remember, those of us who are older, remember it in the old authorized version language. Wasn't it the Lord bless thee and keep thee? Yeah? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Now, thee is not reverence. The is you singular. Isn't that something? That in this multitude of people, the benediction that's pronounced, I mean, think this way, when the benediction is pronounced, if ever this benediction is used and you are there, the Lord bless you. Yes, of course it means all of you. 
but it does mean you, you singular. That the Lord Jesus wants to pour out his blessing on us. The second thing to notice here, uh, that perhaps if you're my generation, this was the only lie your mother told you. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And you wanted to scream if you weren't like me, well, why does it hurt so much? Because sticks and stones may break your bones and names will hurt you, won't they? We understand today probably better than any time in history since the book of Proverbs was written that words do something. They don't just describe something. They do something. They do something. And these words do something. Because you see, this is not divine wishful thinking. This is not the high priest coming out from the sacrifice being made or Jesus coming out in his resurrection and saying, well, you know, it'd be really nice if God blessed you. This is Jesus pronouncing his blessing on you. This is Jesus pronouncing his blessing on you. I had an associate once who came to me, as I think I've told some of you before, said, Sinclair, a lot of the people are saying to me, why do you keep your eyes open when you pronounce the benediction? I said to him, next person who asks you that, you say, how do you know he keeps his eyes open when he's pronouncing the benediction? But if they really want to know, it's for this reason. It's not meant to be a prayer. It's not meant to be a prayer. It's the final proclamation of the gospel that's being made to you. That's what it is. With your eyes open. That's why you can keep your eyes open at the benediction. So you can not only hear the blessing of God, but as it were, sense that the blessing of God is coming to you out of the word of God. And there's also something very interesting here for for most of us, probably. You notice, you notice the addendum in verse 27, where the Lord says, in this way the high priests will put my name upon the people of Israel. So it's dead and gone, isn't it? Oh, doesn't that remind you of the end of Matthew's gospel? Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the ultimate Old Testament blessing that says to us, he's named you for himself. Now go and live as someone who carries the family name of God. And you know, they didn't even pronounce that name. You know that, don't you? You know, if you go to a, a Jewish service today and they read the Bible in Hebrew, they will never pronounce the divine name Yahweh. Never, never, ever. Ever, ever. Too holy to be pronounced. And here is Jesus before his ascension, after his death and his resurrection, and he says to his disciples, for the first time in all history, I'm going to tell you how you pronounce the divine name Yahweh. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And just as he named his people in the Aaronic benediction, I'm naming you in the benediction of baptism. Put my name on them. You've got the name of the Lord on you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you've been baptized. And and so it sends a message to you that all the blessings of God's grace in Jesus Christ are promised to you in the gospel. And all the resources you will ever need to be able to live as a member of his family who know what it is for the Lord to bless you and keep you, for the Lord to make his face shine upon you, for the Lord to lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. No wonder Paul wrote, we bless God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Your friends, like our friends, how are you doing? I am blessed. I am blessed. May you be blessed. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you too that in these ancient days you gave your people hints and experiences that would point forwards to the great day of Jesus. We thank you that we now live in that great day and we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the blessings that you have poured out upon us. In our Savior's name, we pray it for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.